This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 30th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Civil asset forfeiture is the government seizure of property in cases where it may not even be clear that any crime has been committed. Local agencies often use federal forfeiture to profit directly. It turns innocent until proven guilty on its head, but there is renewed interest in reform. The Institute for Justice has now launched EndForfeiture.com. Scott Bullock, senior attorney at IJ, offers his thoughts. There has been recently this renewed interest in uh, asset forfeiture, particularly civil asset forfeiture, to be separated from criminal asset forfeiture. Uh, what what has spurred that? Well, I think a lot of things. Uh, one is just the constant stream of abuses that are going on, and those have been documented in reports that uh, we at the Institute for Justice have issued. Uh, There's been numerous news accounts uh, that have shown uh, and have told the stories of property owners whose cash and cars and homes and businesses that have been seized, even though they themselves have had no uh, involvement in criminal activity. Uh, The New Yorker piece that was published last year also pushed the issue into what could be called the elite media uh, uh, circles and got some attention. Uh, from there. And um, it's something that desperately needs uh, to be addressed. So one of the key problems uh, that we've talked about before and is in the news quite a bit actually is how the federal government allows individual police agencies to effectively circumvent state law with regard to forfeiture and what the, where those funds are supposed to go by participating in – by allowing the feds to – actually execute the seizure and uh, using local police agencies essentially as eyes and ears and then recipients of a kickback under a program called equitable sharing. That's right. It sounds very nice, doesn't it? We're going to get together and share everything. But what it really involves are state and local law enforcement officials being able to circumvent to do an end run around their own state law in order to benefit from the federal forfeiture program. So they're really defying the will of the citizens of that particular state that, for instance, might have said, we don't want property to go back to law enforcement or we want higher burdens on the government when they try to take property. You see in those states that have those higher burdens or um, do not have as strong of a profit incentive, state law enforcement and local law enforcement officials working more and more with the federal government. So it's a blatant violation not only of property rights but of principles of federalism uh, uh, as well and just not respecting the wishes and desires of the people of those states. Are the feds pretty upfront about sort of advertising this program to uh, local law enforcement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's a two-way street. Sometimes the feds contact local law enforcement officials and say, we've got this great opportunity. We think let's work together. Sometimes state local law enforcement officials contact the feds and say, would you help us out uh, on this? And uh, and so they're all there uh, because they all get to benefit. Uh, under equitable sharing, 20 percent is kept by the federal government. 80 percent is funneled back to local uh, law enforcement. And under current federal law, the money must go back to state law enforcement. That is a federal requirement right now. Under the law, it cannot abide by uh, whatever the state requirements might be. So what reform measures are we seeing right now? 
Well, thankfully, uh, in addition to all the the litigation that we're doing, the um, the me- media reports that are coming out, some of the research projects that we've done, uh, increasing public concern about this, we have seen uh, in just in the past week, last week and then this week, two efforts, one in the Senate, one in the House, to uh, reform federal forfeiture law once again. There was uh, a movement to do that back in uh, the 1990s, and Cato played a very critical role in pushing some of the reforms there that then culminated in the passage of a piece of legislation in 2000, which did provide some greater procedural protections for property owners. But it did not go and get at some uh, very important things because uh, there just wasn't the political will uh, to do so in in Congress, one of the primary ones being the profit incentive and equitable sharing that are two of the fundamental problems with civil forfeiture law. So this uh, last week, uh, Senator Rand Paul introduced legislation into the Senate. And uh, this week, uh, Representative Wahlberg from Michigan uh, introduced uh, legislation into the House. All right. And essentially, what do they identify as the key uh, problems that fix this, both the profit incentive uh, for police agencies and also circumventing uh, state laws? Right. Well, they're a little bit different, but both of them have very important uh, reforms. And hopefully, they'll even be strengthened and and we can get two of uh, both of them together and and pass something very meaningful uh, eventually. Um, One of the things that both of them do is that they increase the burden of proof on the government. And that is a very important thing. Uh, Right now, because it's civil forfeiture, there's simply a preponderance of the evidence standard. Both pieces of legislation now require the government to prove by clear and convincing evidence, which is a much tougher standard, that a property owner, for instance, knew that his property was going to be used for illegal activity or consented uh, to its use. That raises the bar a good amount on uh, on uh, the government in civil forfeiture proceedings. Uh, and Representative Wahlberg's bill also requires some more reporting requirements and it also has an important federalism component which uh, states that if equitable sharing is going to take place, the funds that go back to state and local law enforcement agencies must mirror the state law. So if the state law says funds have to go to education or that they have to go to the general fund of the state, then any money that comes back from the federal government has to go to those uh, to those uh, programs. And that's a very important change. Senator Paul's bill uh, goes even further and rep- represents uh, some even more significant changes. First of all, he would change the burden of proof, as I mentioned. He would also um, basically abolish the profit incentive at the federal level. The money would go to the general fund, the treasury fund, which is where it used to go before the law was changed in the mid-1980s. So it would not go back to the very people that are out there prosecuting the law. It would not go back to the Department of Justice and police and prosecutors. And it would essentially end the equitable uh, sharing program in in most instances. So they have some differences, but both of them uh, uh, constitute some very meaningful reform. One thing I think that perhaps it's hard to appreciate, maybe it's uh, easy to measure, is the how police agencies' priorities are altered uh, away from crime where there's no cash to be seized, where there's no property to be seized, where there's no financial benefit to police doing their jobs properly, uh, away from those kinds of crimes and toward crimes that are 
people carrying cash, uh, you know, sometimes illegally, sometimes uh, in pursuit of uh, profits, uh, illicit profits, but just the perversion of, of law enforcement priorities. It's a complete perversion of law enforcement priorities and it, it shows that as every economist will tell you, incentives matter. And if you give people the wrong incentives, they're going to respond accordingly. And that's an important point. I mean, there's a lot of forfeiture horror stories and abuse stories of police officers and uh, prosecutors spending money on ridiculous things like margarita machines and a Zamboni and, and other types of things. But this is not a problem of a couple of bad police officers or, or prosecutors. This is an institutional problem. It's not the, the players, it's the game itself because the system is so rigged against property owners and there is such a strong financial incentive that of course you're going to see cops not trying to solve cold cases or out patrolling the streets, trying to keep communities safe. They are going to be looking for budgetary supplements and civil forfeiture law permits them, encourages them to do that. So it should not be surprising when you see law enforcement officials behaving accordingly. If you remove those incentives, change radically altered civil forfeiture law or you know, ideally at some point abolish civil forfeiture law, I think you would see a lot more law enforcement activities focused on actually stopping real criminal activity. How extreme is this problem when it comes to police budgets? I know that, that forfeiture can supplement budgets, but there are some extreme cases where forfeiture uh, creates <laughs> broadly the bottom line of the budget. Oh, right. And, um, and it varies from state to state. Uh, but at the federal level, forfeiture revenue has exploded. It, the for Assets Forfeiture Fund typically now has two or three, sometimes as high as $4 billion in it at the federal level alone. Hundreds of millions of dollars are sent back to law enforcement uh, through the equitable uh, sharing program. Some states uh, have it so that, uh, like in Arizona, and in Texas and Pennsylvania that law enforcement officials can use forfeiture not just to renovate their offices, buy new equipment, go to law enforcement conventions, but can actually use it for salaries uh, and can hire temporary employees or pay uh, overtime for it. So you know their, their personal paychecks are, are, are at stake uh, for this. Recent survey of law enforcement officials, uh, 1,400 were surveyed and they said that almost 40 percent said that forfeiture was a necessary budgetary supplement. So you're seeing an increased reliance on this. And it's only going to uh, get uh, more extreme in a time of budgetary shortfalls and um, governments wondering where money's going to, to come from. Uh, there's, there's a tool available that allows them to go out and raise money from citizens. And that's, yeah, I, I mentioned this as well, that is a very significant threat to the rule of law. And it violates a fundamental principle of the separation of powers. The legislative branch is supposed to decide how much money is to be appropriated and spent. But through civil forfeiture, you have executive branch officials, people who are supposed to be charged with fairly enforcing the laws, now basically raising their own revenue, deciding how much money is going to be taken from citizens. And that is an extremely dangerous power the founders warned against. Scott Bullock is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. You can learn more about the long, sordid history of civil asset forfeiture at our website, cato.org.